How y'all doing? That was a, that was a uh, excellent uh, worship time together. That's, that, that was beautiful. That was, that was, that's fantastic. Love it. I love it, love it, love it, love it, love it. Uh, I want to give a thanks to Sandra for preaching last week. Didn't she do a great job? Thank you, Sandra. Absolutely fantastic. I, I had a really busy week. I was, uh, over the weekend, uh, I was a speaker at a Mennonite conference and uh, love the Mennonites. And then I went right from there to uh, a conference out in New York uh, on science and theology. It's called BioLogos, a really cool uh, organization. And um, they had some of the world's uh, leading scientists and leading theologians and some pastors together. And uh, we were all just uh, talking about issues surrounding faith and, and science and really asking the question of, you know, what, what is it, why is it that so many Christians are convinced that evolution and uh, the Bible are incompatible? And, uh, you know, we just talked around that a lot. And it was a really good conference. It was kind of an egg-heady thing. Uh, but I like egg-heady things now and then. And along those lines, let me say this. Uh, the message today is going to be a little bit egg-heady. Uh, a little bit. Uh, see, I, sometimes I like to get uh, kind of motivational or confrontational, prophetic, you know, and, or whatever. And then the other times, it's uh, more egg-heady and get educational and whatever. And this is going to be one of those educational messages. Now, those are, can be kind of boring sometimes, I know, uh, but they're important. And this is, this is, I encourage you not to tune me out on this because we're going to be talking about some things that really pertain to the foundation of our faith. Why, why are we Christians? Um, what reasons can we give uh, and, and how to uh, respond to certain objections that people have to the faith. So uh, stay tuned on this. Uh, we're entitling this the conspiracy conspiracy. Because it's about a conspiracy of a conspiracy. You'll see. Uh, Trevor Ford came up with this brilliant title. And uh, it's uh, paradoxical, but you'll see what I'm talking about here in a moment. We're studying Colossians and we're actually going to jump ahead three whole verses today. We, we, we spent six weeks or so on the seven verses before this, but now we're streaming ahead and we're going to read from chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, the conspiracy conspiracy. Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. The word fullness there in Greek is pleroma. And uh, remember that. We're going to be coming back to it in a little bit. Pleroma. All of the pleroma. All that makes God God was in Christ. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. Very cool concept here. That fullness of God is in Christ and, and our fullness is in Christ. Because he's fully God and fully human. And, and I'm going to preach on that uh, probably in a week or two or five. I don't know. We're going to hover on this for a little bit. Uh, but it's just, this is just a very cool packed passage here. So all the fullness of the deity uh, lives in bodily form in Jesus. And in Christ you have been brought to fullness. And he is the head over every power and authority. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Abba Father, uh, on behalf of everyone in this auditorium, and everybody who's listening through podcasts, we just bless our our pod listeners, brothers and sisters, and everyone watching through television. God, we just pray that you'll uh, help us attend to this information. God, we pray that you would infuse this message with your authority. Abba, Father, would you just send your spirit and, and into our lives and use these words uh, to form the kingdom in us, uh, to equip us, to prepare us, to ground us, so that we can be people, God, who, as we just saying, are salt and light in this world. That's our vocation. 
Father, use this message to equip us to do that. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's people said, Amen. 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 So here we go. Paul is confronting here a hollow and deceptive philosophy. It's hollow and deceptive because it looks attractive on the outside, so it draws people to it, and yet there's nothing on the inside. It's hollow. Because it's based on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world. I'll say more about that maybe next week. But it's not based on Christ. And any philosophy that's not rooted in Christ is one that's going to lead you astray. It's hollow and deceptive. It's attractive, but there's nothing on the inside. Most scholars agree that the hollow and deceptive philosophy that Paul is confronting here is an early form of what is called Gnosticism. Uh, the, the Gnostic movement was something, it, it was kind of a cultural movement, uh, more of a, air, a spiritual air, philosophical air, than it was a, a particular school. There's a lot of different forms of it in the ancient world, but it was a little bit like our New Age movement today. You've heard of the New Age movement? Uh, it's kind of this Eastern, mystical sort of thing that we got going on here. Well, the Gnostic movement was quite a bit like that. It was very attractive to folks uh, in the ancient world. It was called Gnosticism because it's based on the word gnosis, which in Greek means uh, knowledge. And what all these different kinds of Gnosticism had in common is, is a quest for knowledge, some kind of spiritual insight. And they, uh, many of them at least advocated having a sort of a spiritual experience, a mystical experience that would give you uh, insight into the spiritual world. They were really into angels and gods and spiritual agents and, and the details of the spiritual realm, which you could know about through some mystical experiences. And uh, uh, they were very eclectic, like the New Age movement is today. Folks, uh, you know, just pull a little bit from all these different religions, and, and there's a lot of different ways to know God and, and a lot of different ways to be saved and whatever. Um, the, the Gnostics were kind of like that. They pulled from a lot of different sources. They wouldn't commit to one particular religion. They, they sort of were, were synthesized a lot of different streams of thought. And um, some even pulled from Christianity. There were, there were quote-unquote, Christian Gnostic groups. And so they would take Jesus and put them into the system of these angels and gods and divinities. And many of these groups talked about the pleroma of God, the fullness of God. But see, in Gnosticism, they believed that uh, the fullness of God was re refracted throughout the cosmos, throughout the creation. Um, it was sort of diffused in everything. Everything participates in the pleroma of God and reflects the pleroma of God in different ways. But the higher beings, the angels and archangels and deities, they, they participate in the pleroma in a, in, in, a, in a pure way. And the more you come down to the realm of matter, the less you participate in the realm of, of, of uh, pleroma. Okay, so you see all creation is sort of this graded scale. At the top is God, and then like the sun shining, his fullness, the pleroma gets refracted out. And the angels and divinities, and Jesus was one of these in a lot of these Gnostic groups, uh, they, they reflect the fullness in, in uh, a uh, pure way. These Gnostics, Gnostics, Gnostics also uh, wrote some of their own Gospels, and they believe these were inspired. They had their own scriptures. All right, and if some of these uh, survive yet to this day, as I'll say, say more about here in a moment. So this is the kind of movement that Paul is warning the Colossians about. Apparently, uh, there were groups that, that would take Jesus and make him part of the Pleroma, but didn't see him as the fullness of the Pleroma. And so Paul is saying, no, look at the whole Pleroma, the whole fullness is in Christ. So don't go chasing after some angel to find it. Don't be 
peering into the spiritual realm, trying to find some secrets in the spiritual realm to get your completeness. No, you're complete in Christ because all the fullness of God is found in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, this warning that Paul gives to the Colossians applies to us in a lot of ways. We have a lot of deceptive and hollow philosophies that, that plague us and, and that, that uh, if we're not careful, can, can begin to lead us astray. I'll be saying more about some of these ways uh, in, in the weeks to come. Uh, today, I just want to focus on one of the ways that this warning applies to us. Because the truth is that the, the thought world that Paul is confronting here, this movement that Paul is confronting here, uh, is very much alive and well today. In fact, we are ourselves plagued with the exact same kind of movement that the Colossians were. In fact, some of the same texts that uh, uh, from these Gnostic groups are still around today and are leading people astray. They were written after the time of Paul, but they reflect the same movement that Paul is confronting here. These, these, these Gnostic Gospels, Gnostic writings. Over the last 70 years, we've discovered some of these. Uh, the, the biggest finding was in Nag Hammadi, Egypt. It's called the Nag Hammadi Library. Some of you, I'm sure, have, have heard about this. It was discovered in 1945. And uh, we've discovered some of these texts in other sources. And, and so now we've got a couple dozen of these Gnostic Gospels that they wrote. They thought, that, thought they were inspired. Um, and they are today beginning to lead people astray in different ways. The most famous of these Gnostic Gospels is the Gospel of Thomas. Some of you, I'm sure, have heard of that. Uh, here's an actual, the actual copy of it. Uh, and then there's the Gospel of Mary. You can see here that it's very, what survived is in fragments. And, and so scholars have to sort of guess at what was being said here. So when you read a translation of the Gospel of Mary, or here's the Gospel of Judas, the same thing. It's, it, it's, it's fragmented. They have to kind of reconstruct it. And so to a certain degree, we're guessing. Uh, we have to add in text to make sense out of it. And you just got to know that as you read these things, that some of it is, is scholarly speculation about what was said and the parts that are now missing. But little was made of these findings for the first several decades since 1945. It didn't cause a big stir. But in the last several decades, some folks have been taking these Gnostic Gospels and, and saying uh, some things about them that are uh, making them very important. They're coming up with kind of a new conspiracy theory. There's a new conspiracy about a conspiracy. And the conspiracy has to do with the early church. Uh, and something that we need to address. Uh, Peter tells us in 1 Peter that we're to have our hearts, uh, in our hearts, revere Christ as Lord. And to always be prepared to give an answer, an apologia in Greek. Uh, we get the word apologetics from it. To give a, 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 an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. So we, as, as people who are called to be salt and light in this world, we are called to be informed. We're called to know why we believe. We're called to be ready to give an answer for the hope that we have within us. We're called to be able to respond to objections that people have uh, to, the, to the Christian faith. And the way that the Gnostic Gospels are being used today, it's very much like the, the way they were being used uh, in the ancient world, and that is that they're, they're leading people astray. So we need to know about that. And so this is why we're having this educational message here this morning. Uh, this conspiracy theory is that the early church uh, suppressed the Gnostic movement and banned the Gnostic Gospels from the Bible. I'm sure some of you have confronted this, this conspiracy theory uh, in different ways. Uh, how many of you read the Da Vinci Code? Some of you read the Da Vinci Code? It's a good novel. It's written very well, but it's full of this conspiracy theory. Full of a lot of other stuff too, but... 
watching my language here. Okay, uh, the movie Stigmata. Uh, it, it also propagates this, this uh, it came out 10 years ago, propagates this uh, conspiracy theory. Uh, the documentary, or so-called documentary, Religulous. Some of you saw that, confused a lot of people, screwed some people up. Then there's Joseph Lumpkin's book, Banned from the Bible, where supposedly the early Christians banned the Gnostic Gospels from the Bible. And then there's Bart Ehrman's Lost Scriptures, and there's a hundred other movies, documentaries, books that I could tell you about. But they all propagate in one form or another. They're not identical. They have differences among them. But they're, they're, they're propagating this conspiracy theory. The early church tried to suppress they, they created their own orthodoxy and then suppressed this, this Gnostic movement. Um, many folks are saying that these Gnostic Gospels or other Gnostic writings are at least as valid as the writings of the New Testament, maybe more valid. And they're saying that the view of Jesus in these Gospels is as valid as the view of Jesus that we find uh, in uh, the New Testament. And many like the view of Jesus in these Gnostic Gospels because it kind of fits the New Age feel of the, the atmosphere today. It, it fits with our kind of our, our contemporary sort of thinking. Uh, this is a Jesus who doesn't claim to be the only way, the way, the truth, and the life. See, this isn't a Jesus who claims to be all of the fullness. This is a Jesus who is part of the fullness. He's one of the ways. He's, he's, a, he's a kind of a mystical teacher who gives teachings that are, are very close to this New Age movement. He, he, had, he teaches a sort of pantheism in some of these, these writings. One of the most uh, quoted uh, sayings of the Gnostic Gospels comes out of the Gospel of Thomas. It's saying number 77, where Jesus uh, allegedly says, I am the light that is over all things. I am all from me, all come forth, and to me all attained. Split a piece of wood, I am there. Lift up the stone, and you will find me. So there's this mystical Jesus that's in all things, moving through all things, kind of like the force be with you, uh, you know, Luke Skywalker sort of thing. And, and that, that, that form of Jesus, a view of Jesus, fits very nicely with a lot of people's thinking today. That saying was quoted in this movie, Stigmata. Uh, and in the movie Stigmata, supposedly uh, the, the church, the Catholic church, is, is trying to hide the Gospel of Thomas. Uh, in fact, it ends with this uh, uh, kind of postscript. When the movie's done, it comes up on the screen. To this day, the Catholic church has not acknowledged the validity or the authenticity of the Gospel of Thomas. Like we're trying to hide something. There's a conspiracy. We don't want people to know about this real Jesus. This is the true Jesus, which is so much nonsense. Everybody knows about the Gospel of Thomas, every academic anyways. We're, no one's trying to hide anything. But there's supposedly, you know, ooh, the mystical Jesus. Don't want people to find out about that. As an aside, I want to say that this movie, Stigmata, and this, is, this to some degree characterizes a lot of these works, they quote the Gnostic Gospels or these Gnostic writings uh, very selectively. They quote the parts they like, and they don't so much quote the parts they don't like. So, for example, I haven't found any of these works uh, quote this verse. This is also in the Gospel of Thomas. In fact, it's the last verse in the Gospel of Thomas. Simon Peter said to them, Make Mary leave us, for females don't deserve life. <laughs> Jesus said, Look, I will guide her to make her male. I don't know how he's going to do that. So that she too may become a living spirit resembling you males. For every female who makes herself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> Good luck with that one, ladies. <laughs> uh, I, I am censoring so many jokes right now. I just want, I, I want points. Give me points. I heard my ADD brain is like, I could say some really clever things right now, but I'm not going to do it. 
Uh, yeah, so I talked about a sex change operation before. Well, this is, this is what they're saying. You know, this one doesn't get quoted that much. I wonder why. It turns out the, the Gnostics, or at least some of the Gnostic groups, were, were, were rather misogynist, you think? Um, in fact, this misogyny that, that only males can go to heaven and that females have got to become males to go to heaven, uh, that actually crept into the church. Uh, even St. Augustine said at one point that uh, women, when they get to heaven, are going to be males. Ah, how do you like that? Uh, how come we know women are saying amen or running the aisles right now? What's the deal here? <laughs> My point is that they're very selective on this. You know, and you just got to know that when they, when they put that stuff out there. There's a lot more that could be said than they're saying. Um, but the, the basic idea is that, that the assumption is that these Gospels, these Gnostic writings, they contain truth. Uh, that is not in the New Testament. In some ways, they're more valid than the writings that we find in the New Testament. So you find the Da Vinci Code. Uh, they grab onto this Gnostic Gospel of Mary. And uh, in that Gospel, uh, they say that Jesus married uh, uh, Mary Magdalene, though the Gospel doesn't say that, actually. But that's what the, the, the mythology around this. And then they had children, so there's this bloodline that comes from Jesus and blah, 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 blah. It's a conspiracy. And then uh, the Gospel of Judas, uh, which was discovered in the 1970s, uh, but got, uh, they made a big hoopla out of it a couple of years ago because someone wrote a book on it like it was a new thing. Uh, and, and there... Um, Judas didn't, isn't the traitor of Jesus. He's actually Jesus' beloved, most beloved disciple. And so the book that was written about the Gospel of Judas says, well, you see, there's a lot of different views of Judas back then, and there's a lot of different views of Jesus back then, and, and the mean, nasty Orthodox Church, they just suppressed all of that to give us their version of Judas and their version of Jesus and banned everything else. Some of these folks are saying that the, the church doctored up the books, our own books, uh, and and uh, made Jesus divine, fully divine. And so in the Da Vinci Code, uh, the main character says at one point, until that moment in history, referring to the Council of Nicaea, Jesus was viewed by his followers as a moral prophet, a great and powerful man, but a man nonetheless, a mortal. So supposedly up until 325, Christians only viewed Jesus as this great mystical teacher, but then the mean, nasty Orthodox Church uh, made Jesus divine and inserted that into uh, our, our, our text. Bart Ehrman doesn't go that far because he's a scholar and knows better, but, but he's still nonetheless, in, in, in some of his writings, uh, misquoting Jesus, for example, in that book, he says that the early Christians doctored up the New Testament and inserted things and modified things in order to fit with their orthodox view. So there's a conspiracy here. There, the church was involved in conspiracy. What we have t- today is a conspiracy about a conspiracy. Conspiracy, conspiracy. And we need to know about it. And a lot of folks are buying this stuff. Uh, are being persu- people are being kept from the faith because of this stuff. Some Christians are losing their faith because of this stuff. This stuff is selling well. I just, in the last two weeks, three different people have asked me about Bart Ehrman's uh, stuff. I'm confused. I read the book and, what, is this true? So, I want to take a quick look at this. Uh, I can only scratch the surface in the time that we have. Oh, and by the way, I forgot, I forgot. Uh, I want to have some questions after this. I'm going to try to leave five, seven, ten minutes, probably not ten, but five at least, uh, to answer questions. So if you have questions, uh, dial that number and bring them in, and, and we'll, we'll get to as many as we can. So I'm going to ask just two questions here about this new conspiracy. Two questions. Just scratching the surface here. But are the Gnostic Gospels, in fact, as reliable as the New Testament writings? Is that true? And the answer is no. I don't think so. 
And here's my reasons. I'll just give two, two reasons here. One, you have to look at uh, historical and geographical proximity. And here we're starting to head into Eggheadville, but, but tune in, keep your think gaps on, take notes, because uh, this is important foundational stuff. You have to look at the historical and geographical proximity of documents. All other things being equal, the closer that a document is in time and place to the events that it's talking about, the more reliable it will be. All other things being equal, the closer in time and, and, and uh, place that a writing is to the events it's talking about, the more reliable it will be. The New Testament writings are written by Jesus' uh, early disciples in and around Palestine, where Jesus did his ministry, and they're all written before 70 AD on a conservative dating, and 100 AD on a more liberal dating. I would strongly argue, for reasons I can't go into right now, but I'd argue that all the documents of the New Testament were written before 70 AD. But even if you go with a liberal dating, 100 AD, that's still, by historical standards, very early. By comparison, the Gnostic Gospels were written by unknown people far removed in time and place from Jesus. Far removed. The Gospel of Thomas is written in the middle of the 2nd century, uh, somewhere in Egypt, so far as uh, scholars can tell us. The Gospel of Judas and the Gospel of Mary are both 4th and 5th century documents, and we have no idea who wrote them. Now, it doesn't mean that they don't contain any truth. They might contain some truth. The Gospel of Thomas, about a third of it, is echoed in the New Testament. So it contains some truth, but the idea that they're more reliable than the New Testament documents is just uh, poppycock. Just, it's, it's just, there's no comparison. That's a, that's a scholarly term for garbage. <laughs> Nonsense. Secondly, you got to ask, when you're dealing with any kind of historical documents, what, what is the corroborating evidence? What, what is the historical evidence that supports the claim that this document is reliable? The canonical Gospels have a wealth of corroborating evidence that support their historical reliability. Now, I can't get into that right now. Uh, Paul Eddy and I wrote a book called The Jesus Legend. And we did exhaustive research on this stuff for four years and looked at every objection to the, uh, to the historical Jesus. And you can get that out in the gathering area. I touch on it in, in Letters from the Skeptic and some other writings as well. Uh, but there's just a ton of, of evidence supporting the reliability of the New Testament writings. By contrast, there's absolutely none. None. Zero. Zippo. Nadie. Supporting the Gnostic Gospels. And no one even tries to argue that. I haven't seen anyone try to make a, a, an attempt to even show that there's historical evidence supporting their reliability. They just assert it. And they assert it because they like those Gospels better than the New Testament ones. But preference does not determine reliability. You've got to look at the evidence. Always ask, where, what, what is the evidence? What is the evidence? And there's a lot supporting the New Testament. There's none supporting the Gnostic Gospels. So, are the Gnostic Gospels reliable, uh, as reliable as the New Testament documents? Absolutely not. Secondly, have the New Testament writings been doctored up? And this is a little bit more complex. A little more complex, because Bart Ehrman, who, by the way, I went to school with him. We were at Princeton together, um, doing our doctoral programs together. I know the guy; great guy. Uh, and he's he's right. Now, hear me on this. Uh, he he he's not making stuff up. His scholarship is is good scholarship. If you look at the manuscripts that we have uh, in the first couple centuries of the church, there's a lot of variation there. They, they don't all agree. In fact, no two of them are absolutely identical. And so he's calling attention to that fact. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. That's not a secret. That's common knowledge. In academic circles, we've known about this for hundreds of years. I mean, this is, this is no secret. It's being hailed as though there's a new discovery. And, and Christians are trying to cover it up. No one's trying to cover up anything. We've always known about this. Uh, uh, 
Bart learned, Bart Ehrman learned this stuff from Bruce Metzger at, at, uh, at Princeton. Uh, he was there when I was there. And, um, uh, and yet Bruce Metzger is an Orthodox Christian. You see, everyone knows about this, this, the, the textual variation that he's calling attention to, but hardly anyone interprets it the way he interprets it, drawing these radical conclusions over this kind of conspiracy theory that they're misquoting Jesus. So his scholarship is solid, but the, interp- the way he interprets it is just way outside the bounds. Here's what you need to know. I'll make two points. One, there's a lot of variation in the early manuscripts. That's true. But when all is said and done, only 2% of the New Testament, or really less than 2%, is uncertain. In terms of, do we know what the original said uh, with a high degree of confidence? Less than 2% is, is uncertain. And none of it pertains to essential matters. All right? Uh, this is especially important with regard to the divinity of Jesus. Because these books are claiming that, uh, the Vinci Code says, we didn't hold to a fully divine Jesus until 325. Well, there is, amidst all the variations of these ancient documents, there, there's no ambiguity about the divinity of Jesus. In other words, look at all the passages in the New Testament that deal with the divinity of Jesus, and on that matter, there's no, there's, there's no variation there. It's not like there's some... Uh, versions that don't have a divine Jesus and then all of a sudden a divine Jesus pops up. No, it's, there's a divine Jesus all the way back. Take any passage dealing with the divinity of Jesus. For example, Titus 2.13. Titus 2.13. Here, Paul calls uh, Jesus our great God and Savior. He's fully God, our great God and Savior. There is no textual manuscript in the ancient world that says otherwise. All of them say our great God and Savior. Going all the way back. In fact, you could reproduce most of the New Testament uh, just by how frequently it's quoted by church fathers prior to 325, and they quote all these passages that deal with the divinity of Jesus. So this idea that we didn't have a divine Jesus until 325 and that we doctored up the books to make him divine is just poppycock again. It's nonsense. There's not a shred of evidence to support that, and all the evidence we have argues against it. I could give you, if we had time, over 200 quotes from early church fathers prior to 325 where they, they refer to Jesus as fully divine, God. For example, uh, I'll just give you one. Ignatius, writing around 115 AD, early 2nd century. He says this, Jesus Christ is both made and not made. He is God existing in the flesh. He is both of Mary and of God. That's why he's made and not made. As a human, he's made. As God, he's not made. This is 115. This is 210 years before the Council of Nicaea. Sorry, Da Vinci Code. This idea that we didn't believe in a divine Jesus until that was... By the way, the Council of Nicaea wasn't about the Bible at all. It, 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 was, it, was, it was about the, the, the Trinity. Uh, they, that book is supposed to, when I read that book, I want to pull my hair out. I was just getting so frustrated. So I know people are reading this and probably believing it. And it even says there that we, all, all the things reported here are true. It's like, ah! <laughs> all right. Moving on. Um... <laughs> Here's the other thing you got to know, second point. The textual variation, and there is a lot of it. I'm not, argu- I'm not arguing with Bart on that. But this textual variation is exactly what you'd expect given the oral culture of the early church. Now follow me on this. This is an important point. Uh, we happen to have on our staff here, Paul Eddy, one of the best scholars on oral cultures uh, in the world. I mean, he's just done massive. We, we, we got out of this when we wrote uh, uh, The Jesus Legend, and he hasn't stopped. He's just been obsessed with oral cultures uh, and so everything I know about oral cultures I got from him. I'm always giving him credit. Because he deserves it. He's a good guy. He's good. So, so here's the thing. 
An oral culture is any culture where information is passed on primarily through by word of mouth. It's a culture where the literacy rate is very low, where, where re most people don't read. So they rely on the transmit, they rely on word of mouth to pass on traditions and to pass on information. And in those oral cultures, getting the main point right is very important, but the details are not. They're much less concerned with exactitude and precision than people who come from literate cultures are. Once a culture becomes literate, where most of the people read, our, our, our criteria for accuracy goes way up. Uh, but in oral cultures, that's just not the case. It was assumed that narrators passing on uh, by, by word of mouth traditions and information, they could modify the tradition uh, within limits, as long as they got the main point the, uh, right, they, they, it was expected that they would uh, modify the details to fit the needs of the audience. Now, we do the same thing. If I'm talking to my granddaughter about Jesus, it's going to sound a whole lot different than if I'm talking to a group of scholars about Jesus. I, I, I modify the, the message to fit the audience. But obviously, it will have the same content, roughly, but just, we just package it differently. Well, that was assumed in oral cultures. This is why, by the way, if you compare the Gospels, there's quite a bit of variation on what exactly Jesus said, or when did he say it, or the order of events. They, they differ a lot. And that's because the Gospels are written in oral cultures. And so it's expected that you'll rearrange things and paraphrase and stuff like that. It's no big deal. So these early scribes, when they're, when they're copying the, the Bible uh, to, to, to spread it around, they, they felt free, it's an oral culture, to modify it. Uh, as long as they got the main point down, that was assumed to be uh, okay, and they could modify it. If they thought that they, they could make it clear by inserting a word to make it uh, more explainable, they did that. Uh, and th th that, see, that's not, that's not misquoting Jesus. That's not trying to uh, doctor up the books. That's simply what it means to pass on information in an oral culture. You, you following me here? And so, yes, there's a lot of variation, but none of it affects the essence of the message. None of it pertains to matters that are central to the faith. And it's no big deal. It's just what's assumed to happen in oral cultures. This is, by the way, one of the reasons why um, I, I, I don't care for the word inerrancy. Now, hear me on this. I, I believe the Bible is fully inspired, the word of God. But the word inerrancy in a literate culture like ours, it sets an expectation uh, of exactitude that is setting people up for a fall. Because now you think that every little detail is going uh, to agree. And when you discover that it doesn't all agree, well then it damages your faith. But it, if you understand the nature of oral cultures, it shouldn't. In fact, this is what happened with Bart. And it happened while he was at, uh, at school at Princeton. I mean, he started before then. But see, he came from a very strong, conservative, fundamentalistic church and was taught that if the Bible is inspired, then every word has to be exactly what is in the Bible. Every word is exactly what God wants. And so he goes to get his doctorate and he discovers that there's this massive amount of variation in the textual manuscripts and we're not even sure what about one and a half percent of the New Testament says and it totally blew apart his faith. We had, I talked with him about this when, we, when, when he was at Princeton and it was very disturbing to him. And I think it made him kind of angry at conservative Christianity and uh, I, I, I suspect he's still kind of angry at it. Uh, kind of comes out in his writings. I, I'm empathetic with him. He's a great guy. And I empathize with him because I had the same problem. Uh, not with the textual variation, but when I first discovered that the Gospels don't all align perfectly, uh, you know, the order of events is different and the wording is different, it, it really messed with my head. Um, and uh, I, it was one of the things that contributed to me losing my faith my first year in, in college. 
if you understand the nature of oral cultures, there's, yes, there's a lot of variation, but none of it is, uh, concerns the, the, the essence of the gospel, and there's no conspiracy, folks. And every, no one's hiding anything. So are the uh, Gnostic Gospels as reliable as the New Testament Gospels? And has anything been doctored up? No. The answer is no. Here's how I stand on this. Um, I have got all the reasons in the world to believe uh, that the, the Gospels that we have in the New Testament are, are reliable by ancient standards. Maybe not by our modern literature standards, but by ancient standards. And they're trustworthy. And partly for that reason, as well as other reasons, I've got good reasons for believing that Jesus Christ is Lord. Uh, I, I, you know, the, the, the disciples went out and proclaimed that they had seen Jesus do these miracles and make these divine claims and die on the cross and rise from the dead. And they were willing to die for that. And I read a lot of books that are critiquing Christianity and opposed to Christianity, and I have yet to find a good, plausible explanation for why they were willing to do that, if they were deceived, how they could have been deceived, or if they were lying. And those are your only two alternatives. And so I, on that basis, want to implore us encourage us and warn us with the same warning and encouragement that Paul gave the early Colossians. We live in a culture that is into this kind of Gnostic thing where Jesus, it's okay to say Jesus is a good moral teacher, a wise, enlightened master. He's one of the ways to God. But see, uh, folks, uh, the New Testament tells us that he is not part of the Pleroma. He is the Pleroma, praise God. He's not just one of the archangels. No, he's... He is nothing less than the Lord of lords and the King of kings. Praise God. He is the word of God, the lamb of God, the light of God, the life of God, the river of God. Praise God. His love incarnate, wisdom incarnate, the fullness of God incarnate. All that makes God, God is found in him. And everything you need to know about God, you find in him. And everything that, that you, you, you can help you with from God is found in him. He's the way, the truth, and the light. Praise God. And, and so I encourage us to put all our eggs in this basket, base our life on him, uh, commit our lives to following him and to pursuing him and to being part of his kingdom and inviting others in on the kingdom. That, folks, is what it is all about. Amen. All right, let's take a, let's take a couple questions here. What do we got? What about the view that Paul didn't actually write all the letters attributed to him? Do you agree? Does it matter if he didn't? Well, very good. Excellent. Okay, so there's um, a lot of scholarship, a lot of scholars argue that uh, the pastoral epistles uh, weren't written by Paul, but by a disciple of Paul. Um, you know, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and, and, and whatnot. I am I, inclined to believe that they're all written by Paul, for a lot of reasons that I am not going to get into. I'm inclined to believe that, but I really don't care. Um, uh, it, 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 it was a practice in the early church, uh, not just in the church, but in ancient cultures, that often a disciple could write in the name of the, the master. Some of Plato's works, are, are, they, they suspect, are, are like that. They're attributed to Plato, but Plato didn't actually write them. Um, and in the, by ancient standards, that, that was an okay practice. It wasn't a, a forgery or anything. It was just writing in the name of the disciple, and it was received as that. So if that's the case, fine. It wouldn't bother me a bit. Um, I don't think it is the case, but if it is the case... Uh, I'm not going to lose any sleep over that. Other questions. I love Jesus and respect his moral teaching, but believe he is one of the slew of paths to God and heaven. Will I go to hell? Thank you for asking that. Uh, yep, you're gone. Bye. <laughs> no. uh, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, well, look, I, I, I never, I don't think any human being is ever commissioned to pretend like they're God and know the answer to that question. 
Um, only God is your judge. He's your creator. Only he knows your heart. You know, the question is why? why? If I could talk with you, I'd ask, why do you think he's one of, the, of a slew of paths to God? On what basis do you believe that? Um, and, and for all I know, you've got a heart that pants after God and you're sincerely seeking God. And uh, I, I think you're, you're just misguided on that. Uh, but I don't know your heart. Only God knows that. Uh, but I would warn you. I would give a warning here because he does say, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one goes to the Father except through me. Now, I, I think that, that he being the way, the truth, and the life, he encompasses more than know him. I think you know, he gives a bear hug around all of humanity. And uh, uh, I think some folks know him in their heart but don't know about him in their minds. Uh, but but I, would, I would never use that as sort of a cushion to say, well, then I'm, I'm okay and I'm covered. No, it, it's very important. God wants a relationship with us here and now. And, and Christ is the way to have that. He is the, the, the revelation of God. He came down to earth for that very reason. And so I would implore you, I challenge you to consider the things I said here. I challenge you to look into this. Uh, uh, we have other books out in the gathering area that, that I, I encourage you to look at. And, and ask yourself the question, why do you believe what you believe? I know it's more comfortable in our kind of new age atmosphere, which is very much like ancient Gnosticism. Uh, we like to believe that more than that there's one way. Uh, it, it fits with our kind of open you know, view uh, uh, with the world. And we like to be eclectic, but I think the, 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 the view is mistaken. And so why do you believe that? I can tell you why I believe he is who the, who the gospel authors say he is. They don't present him as one of the ways to God. They present him as the Lord God Almighty. And I can give you a lot of reasons why I think they're right. Um, if, if, if you're right, then I'm wrong, and I would like to be told why you think I'm wrong and why you hold what you, what you believe. But as to what your eternal destiny is, uh, I'll leave that up to Abba, Father. Even as I warn you, I will uh, and, and implore you to look into this. Uh, I, all judgment belongs to God. Amen? Oh, by the way, um, uh, before I get to that, I need to explain this. Uh, this the shirt. Someone was confused. See, this is the, the, the de-evolution of, uh, of human beings. And yes, I do have ADD. Uh, so here we're, we're getting, you know, we're going backwards and we can become more ape-like and, and warrior-like and, and fighting-like. And that's just, the, but I felt the need to explain that. Probably that's one of the questions that we're going to be facing here. But even if it's not, I just answered. Okay, what do we got? Where does the Apocrypha and the Gospel of Q sit in relation to the New Testament writings and these Gnostic Gospels? Are these writings true? Excellent. All right. Oh, succinctness. How do I do this? Uh, it's the Apocrypha, bottom line, most succinct way to put this is, is this. Uh, uh, the, the, the Jews, uh, before the time of Christ, had some of these writings that uh, some thought were inspired, others thought not quite inspired, and so they, they, they were kind of a second canon. Did I say something funny? My 10-year-old son, Evan, wants to know what's up with your hair. Oh, my shirt. Oh, thank you. Why did I say hair? I thought, am I, here, am I having a bad hair day? It is kind of frizzy. I know. It's, kind of, it's not as bad as it was, though. Man, I'll tell you. Okay. So, uh, the early Christians inherited this, uh, amp, this, this sort of second-class uh, canonical uh, writings. All right? And, and so, it was assumed you could preach from them, but you just don't base doctrine on them. That was kind of the agreement. And so, for 1,400 years, we went along fine with having our canon, which was fully inspired, and then this sort of second-class canon that we could preach from and, and we read from, but we didn't base doctrine on it. Well, then the Reformation happened, and uh, Luther split, and one of the things he split over happened to do with pur the pur uh, doctrine of purgatory and, and indulgences and praying for the dead. And then to defend that doctrine, the Catholics began to uh, quote uh, the, from the Apocrypha works. 
Because that's the only place where you find praying for the dead. And Luther says you can't quote from that because that's not the inspired word of God. And the Catholic says we sure can because it isn't the inspired word of God. So two new positions were created. Instead of having this kind of let's get along with each other and it's, it's sort of inspired but not fully. Now the Protestants denied them all together and the Catholics affirmed them all together, which is why we today have a Protestant Bible that, uh, that excludes them and the Catholic Bible that includes them. There you go. Now the other part of the question had to do with Q. Q is... Oh, how do I make this succinct? And you, this is part of this whole conspiracy thing. Uh, they'll mention Q quite a bit. Q stands for quelle in German, which is the word for source. And it's, it's a word that scholars use to refer, to, to explain the material that Matthew and Luke have in common that's not in Mark. Because most scholars think that, that, that Matthew and Luke used Mark, but they also have this other material, so they say they, they think they must have had a shared source. Now, see, if you understand oral cultures, you understand that that source didn't have to be written. It was just part of the tradition that's passed on orally, and so there's these sayings. But what happens is that you find uh, 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 some of the Q material, all the stuff that's in the Gospel of Thomas that's shared in the New Testament, is, uh, it echoes Q. So they, they want to use Q to say this is what the original Christians were like. Uh, they had these wisdom sayings, blah, blah, blah. There's no miracles that are found in Q, which, by the way, doesn't exist, even though they've now published a version of it. This is a theory that scholars have to explain uh, this, what's called the synoptic problem. Are you getting confused yet? Well, wait, I'll get you more confused. So... No, it's what feeds in this whole conspiracy theory. Uh, Q is true. If you mean by Q, simply the material that Luke and uh, Matthew have in common over against Mark, because it's found in Matthew and in Luke. But the theory of Q is not necessarily true. Q just stands for this mysterious source sort of thing. Um, with regard to the Apocrypha, I have no reason to... There's some history there that is true, but I would assess those documents the way I assess any documents in the ancient world, and that is you put them to the test of, of, of evidence. Why think these writings are historical? Uh, I think that there's some good history there, reliable history there. I think there's also some stories that I have reason to think aren't fully reliable. But the bottom line is I don't have any reason to think that they're part of the inspired word of God. Um, Jesus never quotes them, and you know, there's all sorts of considerations we could have there. So, bottom line, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Don't go chasing the pleroma. Uh, and, and some angel or some mystical secret or some knowledge over here or there. All of the fullness is found in Christ. Your completeness is found in Christ. The fullness of the pleroma is found in Christ. Do not be led astray by hollow and deceptive philosophies. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Will the prayer team come up here? And as I uh, close in prayer, I want to invite anyone who has a need uh, on any matter. Uh, to come and pray with these folks. And during the worship service, we have prayer folks all around as well. I encourage us to take advantage of that so the body can be ministering to the body. It's one of the things we're supposed to be doing, amen? So feel free to come up here and pray with these folks. Abba Father, as we leave this place, we ask God that you give us your wisdom and protect our minds and keep us from hollow and deceptive philosophies and keep our lives and our, our hearts fixed on Jesus Christ, who is your perfect image, uh, the perfect word of God, image of God, expression of God. And God, as we leave this place, we commit to living according to his example with his spirit within us, with his life flowing through us, and use us to build your kingdom as we stay awake to your presence moment by moment. In Jesus' name. And all of Abba's kids said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Go love on the world. See you next week.